Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their houses. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This is the word of the Lord. Preparing a bride is, in some estimation, not a manly thing. In the way that our world thinks in the way that manhood is promoted today, manhood is seen in this very small sliver of what real manhood is. Real manhood in our culture today looks like a macho thing. It looks like Schwarzenegger coming in with 
double machine guns blazing. It looks like pumping iron. It looks like being a tough hero. It looks like being the superhero. And Jesus was a superhero, so to speak. That is, all super superheroes, when contrasted with what Jesus Christ did in this passage, look weak. None of the superheroes that you've ever heard of defeated death itself as an existential thing. They always defeat Lex Luthor or some radioactive train coming towards the city or what have you. None of them change the world, change the universe in what they do. All of them have temporary small victories. And yet what Jesus does in the midst of this Herculean, more than Herculean victory is something that seems so unmanly, yet is extremely manly. That thing is he becomes a gardener. And I want to explain that as I want to, I want that to pique your interest a little bit. What does it mean that being a gardener is a manly thing? And no, I'm not advocating a hobby, though I myself have a garden and will be making a garden this year. I'm not talking about making a physical garden. You don't have to make a physical garden instead of being a carpenter or instead of being, you know, somebody who makes instruments or paintings or whatever. I'm not advocating a vocation. I'm advocating understanding what Jesus Christ did in his interaction with Mary. There's something special here. There's something beautiful here. And what he does with her in this conversation and what he shows uh, through the, the way that his resurrection took place, informs what we understand about the church and all of life. So I want to talk about Christ as the gardener in that framework and touch on five things. I want to review some themes in John's gospel that he's written about. We're going to look at how this is not just, this doesn't just show up in John 20. It also shows up in everywhere in John. And John is intending to, uh, not me, John, John, the, the gospel writer, is intending to demonstrate a particular aspect of the resurrection that none of the other gospels present. All of the gospels in their presentation of the resurrection have a little bit of a difference between what they highlight and what they emphasize. They're all helpful. We're going to look at John's gospel today in that regard. We're going to look at Mary's search for the Lord and what that reminds us of, this search that she's looking for her beloved and where, uh, where she finds him and what happens right after she finds him is simply beautiful and amazing. I want to look at tilling the ground and what Jesus was doing as he was standing here in this uh, passage. I, I want you to engage your minds and imaginations as we read and, and these accounts. In fact, if you wish to, you can totally, this is totally valid while you're reading the scripture, actually try to imagine and see what actually happened here in this passage and think about it like you were watching a movie. Engage your mind, engage your imagination. Uh, Satan didn't create any aspect of you and he certainly didn't create your imagination. God did and he wants to redeem it. Through our imaginations, we can more properly behold and, and see and understand what's taking place in these passages. I want to look at Christ's action to restore the disciples. I want to look at that with uh, an understanding of what he had just done with Mary and how he says something to Mary, and then that translates to an action that he does when he comes and shows up in their midst. And then finally, I want to look at the mission of the church. Easter is not just about the resurrection from the dead of Jesus Christ so that individuals would be saved, but rather that a whole community of Christians would be commissioned in order to reach the lost. That is the goal and the focus of all of the gospel narratives. 
after, after rising from the dead, Jesus doesn't start talking about going to heaven or hell. He starts encouraging his disciples to get ready for a mission that he's sending them on. So with that in mind, let's look at today's passage. Uh, we're going to touch on some things that, were, that we've actually preached about many times over. Uh, but I'm going to review them shortly, and hopefully if you've heard them, it'll remind you. If you haven't heard them, that's totally fine. You'll be able to pick it up and, and, uh, and understand. So in John's gospel, he uses imagery regarding uh, weddings and brides and, and celebration. This is not uncommon language for John. He writes about this all the time. In fact, John's gospel begins with Jesus beginning his public ministry by making wine at a wedding. In that day, weddings were a festive occasion. They are today. But in that day, they spent many days celebrating. I've been to some pretty cool parties. None of those parties have ever lasted more than a day. I used to live in Salt Lake City, and we would hear rumors of these people. It was very common to go far away from the cities, out into the desert, set up a little tent or a small temporary building, and have raves that lasted for days. They knew how to party. This is what's going on. And in that day, if you ran out of food or wine, just like today, it would be totally embarrassing. If you, if you have 300 guests show up at your reception and the caterer dropped the ball and forgot it was that day, that'd be totally, it would ruin the celebration. And so Jesus demonstrates the, the thrust of his ministry by saying, I am supporting a wedding. Where's my ministry going? It's going to a wedding. Begins with a wedding. It is headed towards a wedding. So he undoes the shame. He makes a covering over a lack. So there's a lack and he fills the need by making wine, enough wine to last through the rest of the party and more some. And they say it's good wine. You don't bring Natty Light to a beer connoisseur party. You don't do that. I, I, in my fridge, I have some Hootie Light, which is probably just as bad. And uh, I actually got it. Some friends gave it away. They, they thought it was that bad that they didn't want to drink it. They just gave it away. Don't bring wine that you would give away. Uh, bring wine that's good. And so that's what Jesus does. He preserves the integrity of the wedding. He preserves the integrity of the celebration. And he helps this couple avoid embarrassment, which would always be the way people remembered them. If that's the first impression of that new couple, this is their planning skills. And then their kids grow up and their kids make mistakes. Oh, yeah. Well, their parents weren't good planners. You know, that would have followed them for the rest of their lives. Jesus intervenes and makes a covering. And so Jesus is starting his ministry with a wedding, signifying that the point of his ministry is a wedding. When the wine had run out, Mary, the mother of Jesus, said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman. Now, that's not insulting. That's just proper Bible speak. He's not saying woman, uh, as I'm often tempted to do. What, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Jesus Christ only did what he saw the Father doing. Amen? Amen. If you don't know that you should say amen to that, you should. Jesus says that I only do what I see my Father doing. When she petitions him to do something, he says, I don't have anything to do with this. My hour has not yet come. So he had just connected with God and realized this isn't on our radar. And look at what happens. Mary, his mother, said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. There was something in Mary. There was some desire to see the promises of God about this one, her special child, who was to be the Messiah for her people. 
that wanted to see that fulfilled that actually moved the heart of God and changed the situation. This is an amazing thing that happens. Jesus then checks in with the Father again and says, it looks like the hour has come. He doesn't actually say that in the text, but then he makes the wine. And so Jesus is demonstrating his, uh, his goal, his ministry goal. He is fashioning things to a wedding. John the Baptist, uh, the next chapter in John 3, identifies Jesus Christ as the bridegroom. Now, this is somewhat confusing language, so I'm going to help us out really uh, intensely with this. But I, it's kind of like um, A plus B equals C. And the C is what we're talking about here when Jesus, uh, John the Baptist does explicitly say that Jesus is the bridegroom, but he says it in somewhat of a puzzle. And we're going to look at that real quick. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have sent one before him. So, so John the Baptist says, I'm not the Christ. He says, people come and ask him, are you the Christ? They, they want to know who John the Baptist is because he's preaching repentance and people are coming. They're hearing the message. They're repenting. They're getting right with God. And John the Baptist is asked, are you the Christ? He says, I am not the Christ. You even know that I said that I'm not the Christ. And then he begins to describe who the Christ is. Verse 29, he does not say Jesus Christ or Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. He uses a parable. He uses a metaphor to say who the Christ is. Verse 29, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. Now that understanding is that the bride belongs to the bridegroom. And casually or causally identified that the one who has the wife is the husband, to put it in modern language. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. And then he says that the friend of the bridegroom is joyful. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. So there's this one who is a friend. Let's call him the best man for modern parlance. The best man is happy when his groom sees the bride, right? And so John the Baptist then says the next final verse, we've got our A, we've got our B. John the Baptist says, I'm not the Christ, but the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. He's the Christ. And the one who is the friend of the bridegroom has a lot of joy. How does he say that Jesus is the Christ? He then says, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He identifies himself as a friend of the bridegroom, identifying Jesus Christ as the bridegroom. So he says, the friend of the bridegroom has a lot of joy. Therefore, my joy is now complete because Christ has come and he has manifested himself. And so here we see another building idea about marriage, about wedding, about a a, a celebration that's going to take place. The Samaritan woman in John 4, the very next chapter, she had been the wife of five different husbands. We saw this, uh, I think it was two weeks ago. And although that was true, Christ is demonstrating himself as her true husband. And by true husband with a capital H, husband, I don't mean that Jesus married the Samaritan woman. I mean that Jesus fulfilled the role that the Samaritan woman needed, someone who would rightly protect her and join her to righteousness, redeem her from her shame, and bring her to a right understanding of loving God, which is what takes place in John 4. And so Jesus becomes like a greater Jacob. Remember Jacob, he drew water out of the wells and he fought off all these really bad shepherds who were harassing the flocks. And Jesus demonstrates his willingness to protect his people through this encounter. He provides her with, as he says in that chapter, living water. 
And so this theme of gathering a bride in John is frequently tied, it's frequently there, but it's also frequently tied with the language of gardening and the language of agriculture. Now that may sound really academic, but it's very simple. I'm making a wedding and there's going to be celebration. And to further enhance that idea, I'm going to tie it in with these other ideas of harvesting, sowing, reaping, making uh, a plant, you know, planting a garden, harvesting fruits, harvesting a, a crop. And so just after meeting with this Samaritan woman, again, demonstrating himself as the true husband, the true husband of Israel, he then uses language concerning harvest to describe what he just did. The disciples, if you're unfamiliar with the story, the disciples show up and they say to Jesus, hey, you haven't eaten in a while. Why don't you come and eat with us? We're, you know, there's a Taco Bell and a Pizza Hut Express over here. We're going to go and get some food. And Jesus then says, I don't need to eat right now. My food is to do the work of the Father. And then he begins to describe what just took place. And it's those words, it's Jesus's description of his encounter with the Samaritan woman that we're going to look at really quickly here in John 4, 35 through 36. Do not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. If you're in the middle of June, it's hot. And the crops out there, if you've ever driven through Ohio, we, you know, we have a lot of corn and soybean and wheat. You cannot harvest in June. If you did, it would be terrible. The corn would probably have very little on it. The wheat would be probably only two or three germs instead of like 20. And you would get a terrible harvest. So do not say to yourselves four months and then the harvest. Jesus is telling them, don't pretend like the harvest isn't at hand. Don't think that we are not ready to gather people into the kingdom. He says, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. That's what happens to wheat when it gets ready. It, it changes the little furry things around it. If you've ever seen wheat, it's beautiful. It, it changes color and it, and it demonstrates it's kind of like a banana going from green to yellow. It's time to eat. It's the wonderful aspect of creation that God has put in his creation a sign of being ready for harvest, being ready for eating. And so Jesus says, don't believe that we have to do work until we're ready to harvest, but rather that the harvest is at hand. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit. He's saying that he just, in encountering the Samaritan woman and bringing her into salvation, that he has already begun to gather in the harvest. So that is what the gospel is all about. The gospel is seen as sowing seed, sending forth the word of God, having that seed take root in the hearts of people, and then gathering a harvest, actually bringing them into an encounter with a loving God who has come to save them. And so John, the gospel writer, is recording these special events in such a way as to emphasize this language of harvest. Verse 37 and 38, for here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. So even here in John 4, Jesus is already describing that the disciples are going to be like him. He was harvesting and they're about to enter into the harvesting. I saw a interesting video on Netflix. I don't know if you've ever, Netflix streaming is one of the best and the worst things in life. At at one hand, it's great because there's, you know, lots of content on there and some of it's okay. There's a lot of documentaries, a lot of nature shows. I love those. Uh, some comedies, some dramas, some action. I don't get to watch a lot of action. Uh, single men, watch all the action you want now. You, you won't. 
You won't get to watch action. No, my wife's wonderful. She watches action movies just as long as they're not too violent. And that's, that's wise. But one of the things that I saw on Netflix was a video, and it was a documentary all about the special wine houses in France. Have you ever heard of these? The, um, what's one of the wine houses? Um, right, exactly. And so all of these wine houses are in this special region in France, and they have exactly one week in which they can harvest the grapes at the right time. And if they do not harvest every grape at the right time, then that grape will have been scorched by the sun. And then if they put that grape into the batch, it will ruin the entire batch. So let's say they get 80% of the grapes in week one, then they wait a day or two, and then all the rest of the grapes are no good. They shouldn't even pick them. They should just let them die on the vine. And the understanding of this is that the whole community comes together because you've got these wine, uh, these vineyard keepers, and there's one or two people. They hire dozens and dozens of college kids and people from the town to come and help them do it because the harvest is so great that if they were only the ones, they could produce maybe 10 bottles instead of 1,000 or 10,000. And if they do not have the whole community involved, the wine is lost, the vintage is ruined for the year. And so they have no wine. It takes an entire community to harvest. That's what Jesus is talking about here when he's saying, you are entering into labor that someone else has already done. Those college kids have no actual you know, merit. They don't, they don't have any actual land ownership, but they have entered into the labor of the harvest. And so this language of bride, this language of wedding, and this language of agriculture, farming, garden, it's all together. It's all tied here at one time. So Christ describes those who have come before, like John the Baptist, as the ones who have have been harvesting, and then he brings the disciples into that understanding. And he is the one who reaps and is training his disciples in the exact same way. But that's not the end of the imagery in the book of John. John 12, as we talked about, Last week, Christ will die and will be sown into the earth. John 12, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus Christ prophesies that he will be the seed which dies. And then after dying, it comes up and bears much fruit. It's a wonderful thing to see how these uh, plants uh, come up out of the ground. If you've ever, if you've never seen a seed germinate. I just just go buy any seed, uh, not at the grocery store. Uh, if you save the seeds from most of the fruit, that won't work. But or I'll give you some seeds. It's wonderful. There's this shell which protects the inside, which is the actual you know plant that's not yet a new plant, and then it starts to push away the sheath that's around it, the the little shell covering, and then it sends down roots and it sends up a, a head to come out of the ground and start to raise. And then you get a harvest after 80 or 100 days. It's an amazing thing. And it's a picture of the resurrection. Jesus says that he will be that grain of wheat which goes into the ground, dies, and bears fruit. And so this language of agriculture, it's not just in in John 20. It's not just in one place. It's the way that John writes. It's poetry. it's, It's language. It's beautiful. And so this is the context for today's reading. So after laying that background, let's look really briefly at today's reading and what happens to Mary Magdalene. Mary comes, and she's been a follower of Jesus. She has just seen or heard about the the crucifixion, 
And after Saturday, now on the first day of the week, she goes to find Jesus. She wants to visit the tomb to be with him. If you've ever had a loved one, you can remember possibly the satisfaction, the consolation that you obtain by going and even visiting the gravesite of the one who you've lost. This is Mary Magdalene's heart in this chapter. She wishes to be with the person who she loves. And of course, this love, just to be clear, is not a romantic love. Mary Magdalene, unlike Dan Brown's books, had nothing to do, romantically speaking, with Jesus Christ. She was a disciple. And so she comes and wishes to be with her, her Lord. She's searching, but can't find him. She goes first to the tomb. He's not there. She goes back to the disciples and says, he's not there. She then goes back to look again with Peter and John, but then Again, Jesus Christ is not there. She is searching and she will not give up her search. Verse two, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. She believed that someone had moved Christ's body. Back in the uh, old days, way antiquity, it used to be very common for people to rob graves and they would attempt to rob graves because oftentimes a special person or a person who was rich would be buried with either something that was uh, valuable, gold, bronze, jade, or something that was uh, precious, like a precious garment or a document sometimes, uh, designating them or you know, being with them on their way through their you know, time in, in the grave. And so grave robbers would come and steal this stuff. But occasionally grave robbers would also take bodies. And as gross as that's, I mean, I wouldn't touch a dead body if you paid me. But they would take these dead bodies and then they would hold them for ransom. And they would send a ransom note to the family or to the loved ones of the person who had been lost and say, we will return for silver, gold, et cetera, et cetera. Because the ancients understood that the body was sacred. Unlike today, we treat our bodies so Trivially, we think our bodies are just these sacks of water, as Star Trek taught us. And we, we see no value in the physical creation that God made. But they understood it rightly, and they understood that it was right for a person to rest in their tomb and not be stolen away. So, so Mary's troubled. I mean, if you're thinking like Mary thinks, and you think possibly someone has taken him or, or someone at work, you know, maybe someone just moved him. Hopefully it's just that she's thinking, but she's also fearful that someone has removed his body. Maybe it's a grave robber. And so she is distraught. She's weeping. She's broken. This is, this is a terrible situation for her. And she is looking for her Lord until she can find him. She says the exact same thing that she just said, they have taken the Lord and we do not know where they have laid him to these angels who she sees in the tomb. In verse 13, woman, why are you weeping? Or sorry, um, yeah, verse 13, woman, why are you weeping? They have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. And so she's going around. She's asking this question, do you know? I don't know. They've taken him. She's, she's telling them and she, implicit in this telling is this question, where is he? And so she's going around looking. And I believe that this is absolutely no simple matter to Mary. She is going to continue searching until she finds him. And rather than this being an example of what you or I should do, I think it's actually an example of what the bride of Christ is doing. Not just in an individual way that you or I should be looking for the Lord, 
We, we don't need to look. We know that he's not here. He's risen and ascended. But rather, this is the story, not just of Mary, but of the bride of Christ. Jesus says to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Three times she says, I don't know where he is. They've taken him away. And so this is a complete search. She is on the look. And all of this is exactly reminiscent of something that took place in another poem in Song of Solomon, which we're going to briefly look at very quickly. The book of Song of Solomon is rightly understood to be a poet, a poem between Christ and the bride of Christ, that is the church. And the church being understood as the bride of Christ is personified by this woman. And she goes around in this passage and is looking for her beloved. In Song of Solomon 3, 1 through 4, On my bed by night, that just means I'm having a dream. That's poetic language for a dream. I sought him who my soul loves. I sought him but found him not. I will rise now and go about the city, in the streets and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him but found him not. This is better than any soap opera or rom-com that you've ever heard about or seen because this is authentic love. She is searching for the one whom she loves and she's not deterred. She's not sent away at the first sign of trouble. She doesn't, doesn't just look in one place and then end it. She is looking until she finds him. The watchmen found me and as they, as they went about the city, then she says to them, have you seen whom my soul loves? Verse four, scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held him and would not let him go until I brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her who conceived me. This is language to describe that this bride, this one who is searching out for her beloved, is looking for her beloved and will not let him go once she finds him. This is passionate pursuit. This is, this is life. If you've ever been in love, you can re this resonates with you. you. Especially if you've ever spent any time away from the person you love, when you are searching for them, you can do nothing but cling to them once you find them. And so this is what's taking place in this story. Mary is certainly experiencing this for herself. She really was at the tomb that day. She really did see Christ. But in her story, superimposed upon it, like another layer to the story is the story of the bride looking for her husband. And yet it's been Christ looking for the bride the whole time. Why is it that Mary thinks that Jesus was the gardener? Now, I don't want you to answer that out loud and we're not even going to answer it really quickly. I just want to put that back into the back of your mind. Think about that for a second. <clears throat> Why is it the case that Mary thinks that Christ is the gardener. Just imagine what could have been going on that would have given her the impression that he's the gardener. Now, I, I'm going to give you one little clue, and then I won't give you any more comments on that in, for a few minutes. But I don't think it was a uniform that said something like, you know, his name and a landscaping company. I don't think it was that. But if you were going that direction, I'm sorry. Just think about that for a second. Why do you think he was the gardener? Or she, why do you think that she thought he was the gardener? And then we're going we're gonna to talk about this image, this poetry. In the Garden of Eden, if you have ever heard this story about how Eve came to be, it's a beautiful story. God takes Adam and he causes Adam to go under a deep sleep. And Adam is, you know, before this, Adam had been looking around for a helper. 
He had been looking for someone who was compatible, who could do life with him, and there was nobody found. So God shows Adam his need for this woman, and then he causes Adam to go into a deep sleep. After that deep sleep takes place, God takes the side of, of Adam and, and pulls it apart from him and then fashions Eve. And after that, Adam wakes up to see her. And as soon as he sees her, we actually find the first song in the Bible. It's, it's kind of unsettling to, you know, to really zealous Christians that when they hear this, but the first song in the Bible is not a praise to God. It's slightly a praise to God, but the first poem, the first song in the Bible is uttered by Adam when he sees his new woman, his, his future wife. He says, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. That's the first poem and song in the Bible. And it's not about God. It's about a woman. And so here, this, this praise erupts from him. Other than that, he had just seen all of creation. He was in this wonderful garden that God had fashioned. And he didn't have anything to sing about. And then he sees this woman. And he starts singing. Christ is like this Adam. He is, in fact, the last Adam. He also was in a garden betrayed, not put to sleep, but rather betrayed. And after that, after his trial, his beating, his crucifixion, his mocking, the railing of the crowds at him, he was crucified and dead and went into the tomb for a period of time. And when he arises from that tomb in the book of John, the first thing that he sees is this picture of the bride of Christ, Mary Magdalene. Now, again, I'm not Dan Brown. I'm not telling you that Jesus and Mary Magdalene were having an affair. That's blasphemous and also silly, not supported by any text of scripture or any history at all. But Jesus awakes to find this one who is a picture of the bride. Whereas Adam was charged in the garden, he was given a command. He was given a charge. That's a really old word to just say that he was told to do this. He was given a command to tend the garden, to protect its boundaries, and to protect it from being destroyed or messed with. He was also given charge over his wife to keep her. She was in the garden. And Adam failed in this designation. He failed in this charge. He led a serpent into the garden. He probably should have seen it coming. And not only did he let the serpent into the garden, he also began to give, give heed or pay attention to his words. Adam listens to the serpent when he should have shut him down. And so Adam here has failed. He not only listened to the serpent, but he also participated in the rebellion that the serpent was advocating. He sinned. He failed his job of protecting the garden. And because of his failure, that garden was a symbol of all the world. All of the world fell when Adam fell and he was expelled from the garden, sent away. God placed an angel with an, a fiery sword, which pointed every direction, lest someone would come in and eat from the tree of life and be judged. And so God gave Adam a particular job and Adam completely failed. And where Adam has failed, our last Adam has succeeded. He not only went through a crucifixion and a death, he was faithful until the end. Not only that, after having rised, he began to exercise dominion over the garden. And here, I'll answer the question for you, if you hadn't come to this conclusion, the reason that Mary Magdalene supposed that he was the gardener was probably because he was tilling the soil and starting to work. He was doing what Adam should have been doing, taking dominion over the garden and making it beautiful. 
gathering a harvest. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you, had car- if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Notice it's at the saying of her name that she recognizes who he is. It's in the saying of her name. And that is what Christ does today. He says your name. He says your name and he calls you to himself. And that is still happening. Jesus has begun to exercise dominion over the earth. His death, like a seed which goes into the ground, has been Uh, has sprouted and is beginning to bear much fruit. And so he is tending the garden. He is beginning to make conditions acceptable for bringing in a harvest. She sees him, and at this point, she tries to cling to him. Remember that Song of Solomon passage? I will cling to him, and I will not let him go. Look at what he says to her. This isn't the time... And unlike this Song of Solomon, which is romantic, although poetic and speaking of the bride, it's not time for them to cling. And it's not time because Mary is not going to take Jesus into her mother's house, but rather Jesus will take Mary, and that is all of the church, into her father's house. You may have heard it before, but Jesus rightly said, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. Why does he say, if it were not so, I would have told you? Because he's understanding that his disciples, the people who are hearing him, are understanding that this is about a wedding. This is about being joined to God. This is about humanity being redeemed. Before the crucifixion, each of the disciples, they turn away from this trial, right? They had all run, in case you uh, are unfamiliar with the story, Jesus is Jesus is in a garden. He's praying. They all fall asleep while he's praying. Terribly disappointing. Uh, And then further than that, when the guards come with swords and and torches and pitchforks, they come to arrest him as if he's a, a thief or a robber. And they all leave. It would be like, you know, being a kid and, you know, doing something bad, breaking a window. You've got a whole group of kids. A parent shows up and all of the kids scatter but you. You, you've been abandoned. That's when you most need them. That's, uh, that's breaking a, bo- a bond of brotherhood. You know, that's, it's terrible. Worse than that, Jesus is about to face his death. The hour which they needed, when he would have needed them the most, had he been trusting in them, although I think he was wise not to do so, given what happened, the most important time to be faithful to the Lord would have been in that moment in any way if you were to serve the Lord as one of his disciples at the point at that point. And and yet they all run away. They completely abandon him. And they they basically distance themselves from him. And if you remember Peter's denial, he says three times, I don't know who he is. Now I don't know about you, but it would be pretty offensive for one of my best friends who I lived with for years to say in public and with me present that I don't know him. That would be pretty heartbreaking. And you or I, because we're weak, because we're fleshly, we might even have some temptation to harbor some extreme levels of unforgiveness and bitterness. I mean, don't you think that would be reasonable? And yet, Jesus Christ shows us the love of God. He does not hold it against the disciples, yet he goes in 
to reach them. This is the most important thing about the resurrection to take away from today. Not only did Christ defeat death, not only did he open up, as we sung before, the gates of heaven, allowing sinful people to be redeemed and reconciled to God, not only has he formed a bride and has formed a people who he would faithfully give his word to preach the gospel throughout the centuries, touching every nation, not only has all of that happened, but he himself has become a friend of sinners, of those who are traitors and run in the midst of a battle, those who are cowards and who turn at the first sign of trouble. That's who he befriends, and that's who he befriends in this passage. Jesus shows up in their midst, and he doesn't chew them out. I can think of all the times where I've shown up at my house and either chewed my wife out or been bitter about some situation that something's gone wrong. Jesus doesn't do that in this passage. After having died for the sins of the world, having been abandoned by these particular men, he comes and stands in their midst and says to them, peace. He says a message before this to, through Mary, that my father and your father, my God and your God. He calls them brothers when they're really strangers, aliens, and faithless cowards. He calls them brothers and he adopts them into his family. And so Christ here is beginning to set up his team. He's beginning to, to call his family together, these people who are going to enter into this labor. He welcomes them back in and he declares to them peace. He stands in their midst. It says that the door is locked, so apparently Jesus can do whatever he wants. I think that's true. He, he stands in their midst and declares to them peace, and he, he, he brings them back from this terrible place into a place of love and forgiveness. Don't you think that it's wonderful that the gospel writers included this? I know that in my own life, I have turned my back on God many times. I have failed in various ways at various times, in extreme ways sometimes, sometimes less than others. But the fact that Jesus Christ is one who would declare peace to those who shouldn't have any peace, who should just be considered worthless, is amazing. And it's really a micro view, a a microcosm, if you will, of the gospel. And so Jesus stands in their midst and he declares to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they had saw the Lord. Jesus Christ still bears the marks of wrath that we sung about earlier today. He still has his hand, the the holes in his hands, the hole in his side when he was pierced with that spear. And he retains those, and he does not begrudge you, Christian, when he remembers them for your behalf. They are marks of love. They are not marks of shame for you. They are a beautiful thing to behold, and that is why they are glad when they saw him. The reason why is because you can't simultaneously show someone a wound that they've made on your life and also say peace to them unless they know that you truly forgive them. The disciples get that. Sometimes they're very slow to understand. Here, they're quick to understand. They understand what it means for Jesus Christ to speak peace to someone. And that is what the message of the gospel is. It's peace to those who are far off, peace to those who have run away from God, peace to those who have doubted his existence, peace to those who have not wished to be interested with him. And yet he speaks peace nonetheless. Christ comes to his brothers and he commissions them. And this forms all of our understanding for what the mission of the church is. 
The mission of the church has nothing, if, if a mission of a church has nothing to do with this, then it is not a church and it has no mission that is worthwhile. But if a mission of any given church is this mission, that is a great church to be in. And it's also a mark of the true universal church, which we believe does exist. There is one true church, and that church has this mission. Now, I'm not talking about a particular denomination. I'm not even talking about a particular church in a particular place. I'm talking about a church with a capital C, the idea of a church, the corpus, the body of Christ, those people who are a part of a mystical union in the spirit. And this is their mission, which Jesus Christ describes here. Again, he says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. That's pretty cool. I mean, Jesus did some cool stuff, right? Jesus conquered death. We don't have to do that. Jesus paid for sins. We don't have to do that. He already did it once for all. So what does he mean? Jesus's mission on this earth was not just to pay for sins on a cross and to come out of the grave. Those are beautiful, those are worth celebrating, and we will celebrate those for all eternity. But the mission of Christ included those and more. It included the manifestation of the love of God to a sinful and broken humanity through power, through the healing, through deliverance, through comforting those who are broken, through visiting those who are trapped and in prison. That is what Jesus is speaking about. He's not asking them to, to pay for the sins of the world. That would be heresy. And it's it already been paid. He's not asking them to defeat death. He already did by rising from the dead. He's asking them, he's commissioning them to go into a life which they pursue presenting the love of the Father and speaking the message of peace that his son brought. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now that's a pretty interesting idea that the resurrection not only opened up a way for the resurrection of the dead, which we know to be a core tenet of the faith, that at the last trumpet sound when Jesus returns from heaven and and comes to his people, uh, he will raise up all. Not only has that happened, but also there is something else that's happened, the ability for the human being to receive a Holy Spirit, to be at fellowship with God through God his Spirit is a most marvelous gift. And that is the gift that Christ bought when he died your death. And so all of these things are all together. It's not one or the other. It's not emphasize this, don't emphasize that. It all was purchased by his death and resurrection. And that's what we celebrate. Jesus Christ is forming a bride. And he's also preparing laborers for a harvest. And he's inviting us into that harvest. He says to us that you are entering into a labor of another's. They were laboring and you're merely entering into their labor. And this is what Easter is all about. Easter is not just about forgiveness of sins, though it is that. Easter is also that he loves broken, sinful people and will redeem them from a terrible place and make them a pure, spotless bride that he is glad to join himself to. The aim of our faith is not at all just an eternal state in heaven or hell. Many people hear the message of of the gospel and then they hear an appeal that includes some idea of, well, make a decision now so that if you get hit by a car on your way home, that you don't go to hell and you rather go to heaven. 
Now, I do believe that those who are not righteous and joined to Christ do not depart from this life to anything but damnation and wrath. I believe that. I don't understand a Christianity that doesn't believe that. But that is not the end goal of our Christian life. And that is why Jesus starts tilling the ground after his resurrection. He doesn't say to Mary, believe in me so that you don't go to hell. He says, go tell my brothers that I'm coming to them and I'm going to ascend so that I can rule over the earth for their on their behalf. The aim of our goal is not just eternal security, though that is included. The aim of our goal is the remaking of all of the earth, and that was begun and started, set in motion, if you will, at the resurrection. It is like a snowball which is gathering speed as it rolls down a hill, becoming a larger ball, becoming a boulder, becoming a mountain as it, as it picks up speed moving through history. And this is continuing to take place. This is what our faith includes. Far from the resurrection being the end of the gospel, it's just the beginning. Many people think Jesus died, paid for my sins, and the proof of that is his resurrection. Therefore, I should believe in him. That's not the end of the resurrection. That's not the end of the gospel. The point of the resurrection is to start a group of people working. It's to fashion a group of people who would bring in a harvest. And the triumph over the curse that began in the garden is going to spread throughout all of the earth until every nation hears, until the promise that God gave to Abraham that through your seed, Jesus Christ, all the nations of the earth, all the families of the earth would be blessed. That is coming true. There is absolutely work to be done. There's ground to till. There's seed to sow and there's a harvest to bring in. And that is what the resurrection says. It's not just time to plant, it's also time to harvest. Like Christ, we are to till the ground. We are told to work for the good of, the fe of our fellow man. And the most loving thing to do for your fellow man is to preach the gospel beginning with one particular message which Paul says in Acts 17, 30 through 31, not only is the resurrection of the dead proof that Jesus Christ paid for your sins on the cross, not only is it proof that he defeated death, sickness, and Satan, not only is he preparing a bride, but it is proof that he will one day judge the world. And that is what Paul says is the, is the final meaning of the resurrection. The times of ignorance God has overlooked. Free pass, get out of jail, free card. The times of ignorance God has overlooked. He has wiped away the slate of past sins. And now he calls everyone to repent. Verse 31, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness, how will God judge the world in righteousness? By a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The proof of the future judgment, which we believe is coming upon all, is the resurrection itself, according to Paul. And Paul, his understanding of these things is great. And it may be hard to see the connection, but it's this, that one who died at the hands of an unjust trial, at the hands of evil people who were seeking his death, he not only did not complain, but rather accepted the punishment and took upon the sins of the world, because he wished to do the will of the Father, so he knows what it's like to be judged rightly or not. And at that point, he becomes proclaimed as the judge of the world. That is the most loving thing you can do to people, is, for people, with people, is to warn them 
that a future judgment is coming. That's what the resurrection necessarily leads to. Warning all of the coming judgment, which was attested by his resurrection, we also take up action, removing thorns and thistles from the ground. That is doctrines that are hostile to God. It's not just that we preach the gospel and do nothing else. We preach the gospel and work, and that involves blood, sweat, and tears. That involves real physical stuff that we do. We teach man to abandon his hope in his own strength and look to another who died in his stead. That is what the resurrection calls us to preach, is to turn away from all attempts to unify yourself with God and to look upon the one who was pierced for our transgressions. Not only was pierced, but died and rose again. We set wrongs right and we preach reconciliation to God and freedom to those in slavery. That's the mission of the church. The mission of the church is to uphold and magnify the beauty and worth of Jesus Christ, to show his death as in the place of or instead of men, and from there to also warn all that there is a coming judgment. And not warning anyone about a coming judgment is hateful. It would be like letting your friend jump out of a, of a plane, you know, let's say you're going skydiving, and not having a chute on their back. If you didn't say something, can you imagine? Could you even live with yourself? No. That is what it is like for a Christian to live in such a way as to never make mention to those around him that there is a coming day on which God has fixed that he will judge the whole world by one man. That is what it means to warn others. It is the most loving thing you can do. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son's death. Lord, we ask you that you would deliver us from fear. Lord, we know that we are like the disciples often, that we fail, we struggle, we, we do not stay by you when, when it's important. Lord, we often turn away to our own desires and our own things that we love to do that are against your will. God, Lord, we also are often not zealous. We are timid. We are fearful like your disciples were that night when you were tried. Lord, Lord, I ask that you would give us faith and confidence that remembering your resurrection, how you defeated death, we would be bold. Not only, Lord, to share the message of reconciliation and peace, the, the, the true right call to be reconciled with God now, Lord, we would also include a warning to everyone who would hear that there is a coming judgment. Lord, we thank you that you freely open your hand and give us love, that we didn't do anything to deserve this. We didn't cause you to come and die for us, but Lord, that it was your sovereign desire. It was your precious grace that you gave to us. God, I ask you that you would help us to see our involvement with things in this life things that concern our fellow man as being important, as being vehicles by which we might share your love. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.